Good morning, everyone. I'm Patrick Porras. I'm one of the church planning interns, apprentices, whatever the title, assistant to the regional manager. Um, <laughs> so it's a privilege and it's an honor to be up here and get to preach this text. It's, I love the scriptures. I love all of you. Uh, my dad's here from California visiting. It's an honor to be up here and get to talk on a raised platform and tell my dad what to do. So instead of your regularly scheduled sermon, I'll preach on the biblical and ancient concept of promogeniture, which is the eldest son gets double inheritance and double portion. (laughs) So let me pray and ask God to come and help us listen to this beautiful letter. Lord God, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for your word. May it come and shape us. May we know whose we are. May we know where we are. May we know where we are going and how we're going to get there and be fueled by grace through it all. Open our hearts to pay attention to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine you lived in an ancient kingdom under the rule of a great and gracious king. This king sends you on a journey to deliver a message to some of his surrounding lands. This message is one of glad tidings. It's an opportunity to obtain riches untold. So you think people are going to respond Gladly, but they don't. You're often beat down. You run out of town. You spend some time in jail, in and out of jail. It's not uncommon to be stomped on or spit on by angry mobs and run out of town. And eventually, you end up in prison in a major foreign city, unjustly. You're harshly beaten, locked up again, and basically put on death row. You decide while you're in your prison cell to write a letter to some friends what would the tone of your letter be? Would you bemoan your situation? Would you curse your captors? Chastise the system and beg them to start a GoFundMe page to get me some lawyer fees so I get up out of here? Or would it explode with joy, gratitude, humility, and encouragement? Paul was in just a situation when he writes the letter of Philippians to his beloved friends who are at Philippi. And his letter falls under the ladder of those two. So as we get into the series of Philippians, I get to preach on the intro. And most intros can be summed up as, what's up guys, it's me. (laughs) So I see why there just happened to be an opening for Jake and Adam to come (laughs) preach today. But I've been hit like this, this this joyful proposition in the introduction to preach on prepositions. Prepositions are meant to to help express the relationship between two things. It might seem like boring grammar stuff, but when they help us understand our relationship to the living God, it can change your life. So today we're going to look at the introduction to this letter and see how the gospel preached creates and unites saints. The gospel preached creates and unites saints. And we're going to do that by looking at three prepositional phrases. Servants of Christ, saints in Christ, grace and peace from Christ. Servants of Christ, saints in Christ, grace and peace from Christ. So Philippians 1, 1 and 2, it's in your Bible, it's up on the, um, up on the screen. Follow along as I read. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We start off with that first prepositional phrase, servants of Christ. Some of your versions might say slaves. I think serv- slaves has a negative, very negative connotation in our 
modern society, not so much back then. So servants might be a better way to look at it. And if you're going to understand anything about Philippians as we get into this book, you must understand what it means to be a servant. You have to understand what it means to be a servant. Using this word to kick off the letter is so intentional here. Why? Why does Paul start here? Two reasons, and I think a verse from 1 Corinthians 6 can help us understand that. Verses, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. If you are a Christian, then Christ purchased you. You are His, period. It's an unshakable reality. You are objectively a servant of Christ, and He will never let you go. But being purchased doesn't make one glad to serve always or eager to lay down their life for their master. So why were Paul and Timothy so willing to gladly identify themselves as servants, as slaves? Why were they willing to sacrifice and lay down their lives in service to their master? Is it because they knew that this new match, that this new master was rich beyond all imagination, that he was also the all-knowing and terrifyingly powerful creator and king of the world and worthy of nothing less than their full obedience? Is that why? They knew that. But that's not enough. That's not where the power is. They were gripped by something even greater. Paul and Timothy were servants of Christ Jesus because they had been served. They had been, they were served and they were daily served by this very royal and regal God. You can't just go and serve the master first. You have to be served by the master. The son of man, this is what Philippians is going to be at pains to tell us. The son of man, very God, a very God came not to be served, but to what? But to serve and give his life as a ransom for you. That's the price that Paul's talking about. You are not your own. You were bought with a price and that price was his life. The power to serve God comes when you realize that this all-knowing, terrifyingly powerful creator and king of the universe left his throne, took the form of a servant and a peasant, and then lovingly and gladly gave up his life for you. There's a story in the book of John, another part of the Bible, where Jesus puts on a towel when he's entering into a dinner party with his friends. He takes on one of the lowliest duties of that day, and he goes and he washes the feet of his friends. One of his friends, Peter, objects, Are you going to wash my feet, Lord? There's no way you should be doing this. Jesus looks at him, You don't get it, but later you will. No, Peter replies, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus, I imagine, patiently and lovingly smiling at him says, Unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part of me. Peter, in a rare moment of early clarity, he responds exactly right. Not just my feet then, Lord, but my hands and my head. Get all of me. Wash me. Wash me, Savior, or I die. See, religion says, all the other religions say, Serve God. Wash His feet. Work hard. Wash the feet of others. And then you'll be loved. But the Gospel says, God serves. Let Him wash your feet and wash your soul because He loves you. Religion says, here's the price you pay to get to God. True Christianity, the Gospel says, here's the price God paid to get to you. 
That's what the heart of Christianity is all about. That's what the heart of Philippians is all about. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can't have this mind unless you know the Christ. Then you will not only follow your master anywhere and do anything he asks of you, but you also long, like Paul, to imitate your master by being a servant. How would this change if we took this into center of everything we did? That's why Paul kicks off his letter like this. So these servants of Christ, we're going to get a little more information about them. So jump to Acts 16 if you have your Bible. In Acts 16, we're going to find these two servants of Christ. They're off on their master's business, on their king's mission, and they they get redirected while they're working. They're somehow blocked from going east and then blocked from going northeast. And then Paul gets a vision. They call this the Macedonia call. He gets a vision or he has a dream of a man from Macedonia beckoning, come and help. So pick up with me in Acts 16.10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God called us to preach the gospel to them. This was Paul as a servant of Christ. This was his deepest drive. And this is why Redemption City exists. This is why Joe and I want to help start plant a church in another part of town. Underneath and above and at the heart of all the planning, the confirming, the doubting, the assessing, the praying, the praying, the training, the strategizing, the fear, the excitement, the wonder, the expectation is this clear call that has been branded at the bottom of our hearts. Preach the gospel to them. There are people in Rochester, who are not yet part of the family of God, whose souls are crying out, come and help. There are people in your life whose souls are crying out on the inside, come and help. And notice the we. That's so important. Paul does not go into Philippi alone. We sought to go. God called us. We want to follow their lead. Paul needed help. We all need help. We do ministry, gospel ministry together. Servants go together. So Paul and his squad, they go. The second part of our text, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. This is a major moment in redemptive history. This is the first time the gospel is going to the continent of Europe and to the West. And we in Rochester, we at Redemption City, we're West. Thank God Paul and his company were obedient. Philippi was a leading city in Rome, a city of about 10,000 people, the site of several famous battles, and sat on the Via Ignatia, an important Roman military road. They would have had a lot of traffic through there. It was considered the way through between Europe and Asia like a gateway. It became a colony, and it was under the Ius Italicum. That's the highest status the Roman colony could have. They were under Roman law. So there was Roman citizens. They were Roman dress, Roman architecture, Roman law, Roman economics, Roman politics, Roman religion. In fact, it was called in ancient times Little Rome. It was a very pagan city, about 30,000 deities you could choose from, 30,000 deities to appease. But they had very little knowledge of the Hebrew God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of our Bible, Yahweh. So it's into this very secular and spiritually confused and dark city that Paul steps into. 
No church planning perspectives, no big budget, no intel, no Sunday service, no big launch, no building. They just go as servants of Christ to deliver a message to these people from the king. We concluded that God called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, where these people are is important. But more important is how Paul identifies them. Where they are is secondary to who they are. More than Philippians, they are saints. It's not about where you're at. It's about who you're in. There's spiritual locations. There's You're in the dark or you're in the light. You're in death or you're in life. You're in Adam. You're in Christ. You are a sinner. You're a saint in Christ. Now this part, this next section, it's like a flashback scene. It's such a unique part in our Bible because we're actually going to meet some of these saints at Philippi. So if Paul's life for a movie, he's in his prison cell, he's sitting down with his pencil to to write this letter and it comes to the saints in Christ and his mind flashes back to the moment when he stepped in Philippi and we're going to meet three of these saints. We're going to learn how it happens. How do people become saints in Christ? So pick up with me in 1612. So from there on our journey, went to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gates to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her and her household as well. And she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul goes and he finds a bridge. Usually he'd go to the synagogue, but very secular city. He only had to have, had to have 10 Jewish men in the city to make a synagogue. There's not even that here. So he finds the bridge, finds the next best thing. He goes to where these women are, have somehow got some Hebrew scriptures or heard from a traveler about this Hebrew God, Yahweh, and they're trying to figure out how to worship God as best as they understand how to do that. And then we learn about one woman in particular. It zooms in on Lydia. We learn that she's a seller of purple goods and she has her own household. So this basically just means that she was a seller. She was a merchant. She was selling high fashion. She was out selling Gucci. She was the connect for the Yeezys. She was doing quite well, too, because she had her own household. She was also trying to figure out how to best worship God. She was going to her version of church, saying her prayers. It seems like she's doing just fine in life, right? This is like many, maybe in Rochester. Pretty good person, dabbling with going to church on Sundays, trying to figure out what worshiping God means, and no real physical needs, no real monetary needs. What need has this woman of a Savior? But that day her life changes because God. Because God decides to act. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We don't have the recorded words here. But we don't have to guess as to what Paul talked about. Over and over again in Acts, Paul's message is very clear. This Jesus who you crucified and who God raised from the dead is King and Lord. He summarizes it in 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing amongst you except for Christ and Him crucified. 
when the message is given that you have a debt to pay before the Almighty God that you can't afford to pay, but that very Almighty God came as servant king to pay your debt by dying on your behalf and rising for you that you might rise. It's the Lord that opens the heart to pay attention to that. This can happen to anyone at any time. Don't stop speaking. One of my favorite examples of this is from a couple hundred years ago. There's a man named George Whitfield. He's traveling around England speaking this message, Christ and Him crucified. And as always happens when you speak this message, some people got mad and irritated and angry. And there was especially... Uh, there was a, an opponent named Thorpe who had an especially dramatic flair. He was talented in theatrics. He was part of what's called the Hellfire Club. They would heckle Whitfield. And one night the Hellfire Club meets at a pub, at a local pub, and Thorpe brings a published sermon of George Whitfield's. And he stands up again. He's very theatrical. He's got Whitfield's mannerisms down. And he stands up in front of everyone and he squints his eyes just like Whitfield did. And he starts reading this published sermon in the middle of the sermon in the middle of the pub, he sits down cut to the heart because God opened his heart to what was paid, to pay attention to what was said by himself in mockery. This gospel is no joke. It is the power of God. Do we believe that? Do we believe that it even has the power to change us, much less bring somebody from death to life when you open your mouth? This gospel spoken was all Paul's confidence. Let now this be your confidence when you open your mouth to speak to others. Let's be your confidence when you open up the word to see the gospel for yourself. When servants of Christ speak the gospel of Christ, the Lord opens the hearts of enemies of Christ and he makes them saints in Christ. Maybe you need to consider right now whether you've had the, your heart open to receive and believe this. Maybe the Lord would do that for you, even today. It can happen at any time. So she hears and gets baptized, and she insists that Paul and Timothy and Luke stay at her house. One commentator says, the Lord opened her heart, and she opened her home. This seems like a successful start to the gospel preaching journey. They got a convert, they got a family changed, they got some housing and some support, but that's going to change rather quickly. Pick back up with me. We're going to meet another saint 1616 in Acts. We were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged him into the marketplace and they roused up a crowd and they got them beat. They got them stripped. And they got them thrown into prison. And they threw them into prison. They ordered the jailer to keep them safely. He put them into the inner prison. So we, we meet this slave girl. She's under the power and influence of a demon. I know science, we've gotten past this ancient stuff of demonic influence we don't have time to go into it but just just consider consider the worst atrocities consider the holocaust consider rwandan genocide and try to try to 
describe that without using the word evil. And immediately when you go into the realm of evil, you go into evil and good, you go into objective morality and try to do that without bringing God into this. So all we're saying is that maybe this evil has a personal and supernatural influence behind it. So these men are profiteering off of her not gift. She's following around, shouting truths about Paul and Silas, right? These men are servants of the Most High God. You imagine they might not mind the free advertisement. She's basically a walking billboard. But this is not the one you want co-signing for you. Trying to engage people and build relationships is like the guy with the megaphone on the corner screaming about judgment and death and sin and hell trying to write in your ear while you're trying to have a conversation with somebody else. It's just, it's not going to get you very far. So, Paul, greatly annoyed, which is the single greatest reason in the history of exorcisms to cast a demon out of someone, looks at her, tells it to come out in the name of Jesus, and it does. And her owners get mad that their gain of, that their gain is gone. They presumably, they discard this girl. She has no value to them anymore. They don't care that she was just delivered from demonic oppression. They don't care that she's a person made in the image of God. They just care that their money's gone. Their God has died. They get Paul and Silas thrown into jail. And this is the last we hear of the slave girl. What happens to her? Maybe Lydia takes her in. We don't know. All we know is that this girl has been freed from her demonic oppression. She has been set free. And that's what happens when you become a saint in Christ. You're set free from your bondage. You're set free from your sin. If you are not a Christian, you are a captive to sin and to the devil. You have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan was exactly right in his unique and amazing voice when he wrote, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It's probably not as dramatic as this girl's, but the devil doesn't need you to bow down to him. He doesn't need you to fear him. He doesn't even need you to believe that he exists. He just needs to influence you to bow down or serve anything else besides this Christ, this humble Christ. At least this girl knew that her road to hell was dark and scary. How much more dangerous is it for those who worship themselves or worship money? They're oblivious on their roads covered with mirrors, paved with diamonds, ending up in the same place. You need to be set free. Some of you might not be able to relate to Lydia at all, but you don't know what it's like to have it all together. You don't know what status and affluence feels like, but some of you can relate to this little girl. You've been used and abused by selfish and greedy men, either willingly or unwillingly. You have to battle oppression and depression. You battle your own demons and sins and spiritual forces of evil that are dead set on ripping your soul apart. You feel alone and trapped by either choices you've made or things that have been done wrongly to you. You need to meet Jesus. You need to be set free once and for all. Turn to Him. God loves to do this. He loves to use His servants to do this. Saints in Christ are set free. So Paul and Silas are in jail. And now we're going to meet our last saint. How do Paul and Silas respond to being thrown in prison? How do they respond to the spiteful treatment? Are they up plotting their escape? Seething in the corner of their cells with anger? 1625. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and he rushed in. And he said, Sirs, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, as all the saints have been saying for thousands of years, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. It's all were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. He brought them up into his house and he set food before them and they feasted. And he rejoiced along with his entire family that he had believed in God. So how do Paul and Silas respond? They're singing and praying. How do you respond when life is unfair? How do you respond when life gets hard? How do you respond when suffering comes? Do we complain and whine? Do we write God off? How do we respond when we're merely irritated or life is just a little inconvenient? How we respond in our suffering says more about our faith than maybe anything else we can do or say. And this is exactly what changes the jailer's life forever. God shows up here in a supernatural way. He shakes the earth, busts loose the prisoner's bonds, and the doors fly open. Jailer wakes up, surveys the scene, decides, this is the end for me. As soon as they find out that the prisoners are gone, they're going to kill me anyways and shame me in front of everyone. So I'm going to take the honorable honorable way out and just end it right here. Paul and Silas stay put. And we can assume they tell all their fellow prisoners to stay put. And if the guy who just prayed an earthquake into existence says stay put, you don't move. Why do they do this though? Because they're servants of Christ. They repay evil for good now. At the center of Paul and Silas's life as servants of Christ is a man who died on a cross for his enemies. Tim Keller puts it this way. The reason they would not get their freedom at the expense of the jailer's life is because they had already got their freedom at the expense of Jesus's life. So the jailer by now, who I'm sure has heard the gospel, he's seen, heard them singing and praying. He's seen them respond to beating and unfair imprisonment with love. So moved by their willingness to sacrifice their freedom for him that he decides that instead of whatever he's after in his soul, whatever gods he's following, he needs to have what these guys have. So he takes them out and he asks them. And when God creates saints in Christ Jesus, this is the first question that flows out. What what must I do to be saved? It's humility. Their response, again, just like we've been saying forever, just believe. But it's not just a belief that's out there. It's a belief in Him. It's a belief in this humble servant Christ. It must be in Him. You cannot save yourself. You cannot. Jesus is Lord. He's the one you've been searching for. He's the one you've been running from. Don't wait until the earthquake comes to ask the question the jailer asked. Just come to Him. And instantly, this guy is a new man. 
takes them into his house and he washes their wounds. How many times do you think this guy's brought a prisoner home? Hey, honey, put some food out. We have the prisoner here at our table. But first I'm going to go wash his wounds? Who does that? Not a chance this guy would have done that before. Then he gets baptized and he feasts. And from this, we just need to remember that it is a daily thrill to remember our baptism. It's a daily thrill to rejoice that we have been saved. You must rejoice if you are a saint in Christ Jesus. Remember that you were on your way out of this world, sword to your stomach, ready to end it all, but the grace of the Lord was too much. And that's what this letter is all about. Paul's going to use joy or rejoice 16 times. God will have nothing less for us in Philippians than our unceasing joy, no matter what comes. When servants of Christ suffer well for the sake of Christ, continue to speak and sing the gospel of Christ, the Lord humbles people and He makes them saints in Christ. And that's the story. That's the story about how the church at Philippi came to be. These are the saints in Christ that Paul is writing to. Each one of them woke up sinners far from Christ. They heard the gospel of Christ, encountered servants of Christ, and they went to bed that night to change people forever. This is the creation of a joyful gospel partnership that would expand and compel him to write this letter over a decade later. Please notice that he's writing to all the saints. All the saints, all people, all walks of life. That's who this gospel is for. Why do you think Luke chooses these three stories? There's a common Jewish prayer that Paul probably would have prayed daily. O Lord of the universe, thank you that you have not made me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. What better way to show off the inclusivity and power of the gospel than highlight a woman, a slave, and a Gentile who are now Paul's equals, who are now Paul's family? Do you think they would have had any interaction before this happened? No. Would some of you have any friends you do, have any interaction, people you do if it weren't for this Christ? No. Would a Californian interact with Minnesotans? Just think ketchup is hot sauce. This is true inclusivity and true equality or family now. So they go, but they don't go without an amazing gift. And this is what we're wrapping up with. One more preposition. Being a saint in Christ comes with supernatural benefits. Oh, do not forget all His benefits. Look back at our text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all craving it. Every human is craving this grace and peace. Where does it come from? You get it in religion? No. Can you get it in anything the world has to offer? No. You must get it from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father wants nothing more for you than to have this grace and peace. So look to the fountain. John writes, from the fullness, from His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. That's what leads to peace. Since you have been justified by faith, 
through grace, you have peace with God. And stunningly, one of the main ways God wants to strengthen us by His grace, one of the main ways He wants you to encounter this grace every single day is through His Word. That's why we're getting into Philippians. And this letter of Philippians is for you. You see, Paul had a deep affection for all these saints, as you can imagine. He penned these words and maybe he thought with tears of the last time he walked away from Lydia's house. There's no Zoom. There's no FaceTime. Maybe never see them again. He's thinking of this. He's thinking of the jailer washing his wounds. And he's thinking about all that Christ has done. So with the overseers and deacons, there's elders and deacons. There's people shepherding the church through the word and prayer. And there's people leading the church through serving. This church is well established. Don't you think that Paul just had to be amazed and stunned as he's writing this? Overwhelmed with joyful gratitude. I'm so glad we concluded to preach the gospel to them. And when the Philippians received this, don't you think that would have been their heart? I'm so glad Paul concluded to come and preach the gospel to us. And Paul doesn't know you, but his God does. He knows your name. And these words... Week after week are for you, and therefore they're there for you daily. He longs to fill you with grace and peace through the book of Philippians. So come week after week after week and expect, expect to be filled with this grace and peace. Then go out into your week as a servant of Christ in all of life, as a saint in Christ, full of this grace and peace to say and display this gospel to a world that needs help, that wants help. Just like Paul and Timothy did. Watch God work and build His church saint by saint now just as He did in Philippi and just as He will continue to do. Let's pray. Oh God of the universe, thank You that You have made us saints in Christ. Thank You that we know we are not better than anybody but that we are now all equal. We are now all family. We have You as our Father and Christ as our big brother loving us to the end. May we embrace this Gospel gladly. May it change our lives daily. May it shape our families, our work, our churches, everything we do. And may we go forth and rejoice together. Amen.